Hello, and welcome to another edition of the QB11 Show. I am your host, Doug Scott, joined, of course, by QB11. For this episode, we are thrilled to have our special guest, Hithliday, join QB to break down Oregon's roster for 2022, position by position. The session with Hithliday ran so long, we had to split it into two parts. So today's episode will cover the offense, and we will hold the defensive unit rundown over for next week. Also, be sure to listen to the end today as we cover some of your listener questions. With that said, please enjoy part one. All right, so you know him from Addicted to Quack, where he writes Oregon and opponent previews and reviews, breaks down film and charts plays. I am, of course, talking about Hithliday. Welcome in. Uh, thanks. Nice to be here. Excellent. So what we were thinking is for today to have Hithliday come in and we just do kind of a pre-fall camp Oregon roster overview, moving position by position through the team and kind of just talking about what we saw on tape from last year, some of the stuff that Hithliday has charted over the last two years with, with players that have... Uh, given us a sample that we can we can work with and then maybe some projections on guys that haven't played as much to, to put together kind of a holistic view of what the roster is going into the 2022 season. So uh, I think we should start at the most obvious position and probably the position where you and I have watched the most film of almost anybody is the quarterback spot. So what are your impressions of Bo Nix and the quarterback room going into 2022? Um, I would be surprised if Nix uh, doesn't win the job simply because of you know, all the experience that he has. I, uh, I, I've actually done a weirdly, uh, a lot of film study on the guy. Um, uh, you know, cause Oregon played him in 2019. So I started, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I started in that game, but then like other projects have taken me sort of around the, uh, the sec. And I I've been watching this kid quite a bit. The thing that sort of, uh, you know, astonishes me is that he's been playing for a bunch of different coaches. Um, you know, he had uh, Gus Malzahn in 2019 when he was the sec rookie of the year. Um, and, uh, and Kenny Dillingham, uh, as his, uh, you know, offensive coordinator, although I think Malzahn was really sort of calling the shots there and it's a really RPO heavy offense. And then, um, and, 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 you know, most recently he's been under, you know, Brian Harson, who came in from, from Boise state and, uh, boy, I don't like that offense at all. Um, Gus Malzahn's it wasn't wild about, but at least it sort of like was coherent and made sense. Anyway, like I, I feel like, um, Nick's is. I feel like Nix's potential has really been untapped, um, at Auburn. Um, and you know, in addition to sort of the schematic and all the constant coaching changes, there's also like, it's really kind of remarkable how poorly that team recruited their offensive line and their wide receivers, which like, if you're going to identify two positions that will make your quarterback look bad, <laughs> you know, you could do worse than selecting offensive line and wide receiver. I think he's coming into a much better situation at Oregon. Um, I anticipate him, you know, winning the job and actually looking pretty good. Um, uh, and I think that Thompson and Butterfield, as we saw in the spring game, are uh, will be you know pretty excellent uh, backups, and and being able to take another year uh, to 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 get ready will be excellent for them. Yeah, I think the thing that we can root for for the backups is a, a year of consistency from scheme. Like they've they've been kind of across the gambit now um, in their in their two years. So having having those guys in one scheme for two years to compete for a job that's going to probably open next year is uh, Bo Nix has came out and said as much that he plans to declare after this season. Um, the, the thing for me watching Nix and watching Auburn is he played in two polar opposite systems. Now, oh, we yeah. can argue about the legitimacy of the Mike Bobo system and how coherent and well thought out it is, but there there couldn't be more polar opposites 
um, in regards to the way that the offense is called. I mean, they went from a Gus Malzahn, like, like, like from the book, hurry up, no huddle offense, to a like antiquated 1980s pro style game where Bo Nix was asked to do something completely different than what he had done prior behind probably the worst offensive line that he had played for at Auburn in his three years. So I, I personally and that's have saying something because 2019 wasn't, you know, any great shakes either. Yeah. 2019 was kind of the perfect example. Like we always see in these preview magazines are like, Oh, well they returned five starters. So their offensive line is going to be good. Yes. Well, like they had a bunch of experience, but bad experience isn't necessarily quality play. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I see when I look at Bo, I'm seeing a guy who, He's made to look more like he's this frantic scrambler, like he's not than he really is. Like he's not escaping clean pockets. Like for whatever you want to say about the kid, he's tough as hell. Like he did stand in. Um and while he does have that miraculous like short area quickness to escape crowded areas, he he's comfortable in the pocket. He throws with excellent mechanics. Like when he's on platform and on time, he delivers the ball well. So I think that given the skill position talent that we have, and we'll get into that as we move forward in the podcast, um, and the offensive line that we have, especially relative to what we play on defense, right? Because we're not playing against the 2021 Georgia front seven or the 2021 Alabama edge rush duo in our, in our conference schedule. And so I think he's going to be, uh, given a lot more freedom to operate on time and within the and within the system of the offense, and less so running for his life. Yeah, the other thing that I'll say, just sort of generally on the subject of quarterback transfers, is that I am one of the things that this project of like previewing, you know, all the different Pac-12 teams and and other you know big out of conference opponents that Oregon's going to play. One of the big things that it's taught me is to be pretty skeptical of the transfer portal as a savior. Um, you know, for, for, you know, nine out of the 10 positions on the, on the field, uh, the best it can do is sort of pave in potholes. Like if you screwed up your roster management, you don't have enough linebackers, then grabbing a linebacker or two out of the portal and plugging them in is fine, but don't expect them to play better than they were playing at their last school. That doesn't really happen. Most positions in football, you know, you are playing at your level and that's that, um, the exception is quarterback. Like we've seen it over and over again that a very talented quarterback sort of underperforms at one school, transfers and wins a national championship. You know, what, what was the year a year or two ago where three out of the four quarterbacks in the playoffs were all transfer quarterbacks? Like Yeah, that was the year where it was uh Burrow at LSU, Hurts at um Oklahoma, and I'm trying to remember who the third one was. It was Trevor Lawrence who had been there and Justin Fields at right. o- Ohio State. So, uh, you know, Bo Nix's career NCAA passer rating is, you know, in the like 130, which is, you know, on the low end of the average scale. Um, I expect it to be better for some of the reasons that we've articulated here, better offensive line, better uh, wide receivers, like less scary defenses going up against, you know, uh, probably a better scheme fit, you know, and for anybody, you know, like there's somebody who's tweeting at me the other day that like, oh, we know who Bo Nix is, like he's at his ceiling, he's not going to improve any, I'm like, I don't, you know, I can't guarantee that he's suddenly going to become a Heisman level quarterback, but like there's, if there's one position where I buy, that's a possibility it's quarterback and it's pretty much exactly circumstances like these. Well, and I, I could argue like, despite what you might, and I might think about Mike Bobo well, and frankly, Gus Malzahn's offense, mm-hmm. he did get like considerably better between his sophomore and his junior year. Like if you watch him last year. And again, I always tell Oregon fans this whenever I get the opportunity. Like if you want to know like what you could be getting with Bo Nix, just go watch him against Arkansas last year. Like 
against Arkansas last year, he was on schedule. He was he was delivering the ball with anticipation and accuracy downfield. He was just running the offense. And their offensive line, I mean, to be fair, like my we can get into the Barry Odom defense and all that stuff, but like the, he was under the least pressure that he had been under all year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was one of those things where it's like, you could see the maturation taking place. Now I'm sure his growth has been all kinds of stunted by the changes in philosophy, the changes in coaching. But the, the, the fact remains that he does have talent. It's not like he's a mechanical nightmare and we're just assuming that he's just going to become an accurate passer um, because he's a year older and he's at Oregon. No, it's like he, he's had a good, had a good stable foundation of technical training his entire life and he just hasn't really been put in great situations to succeed now he could come to Oregon and we could see a lot of the problems that he has already shown on tape at Auburn but there's uh, no guarantees like yeah absolutely and there's gonna be some turbulence like here's the deal like you can't tame a stallion he's gonna still do some of the dumb stuff that he's always done but i think you can mitigate that to an extent within the within the system offensively and with the players that he's he doesn't have to run the show he needs to to deliver the ball um and be more of a distributor than he needs to be the guy running the offense whereas at times at auburn he was everything that they were offensively there was an interesting tweet put out um, in the advanced stats community. I'll see if I can dig it up and retweet it um, that compared quarterback performance throughout FBS. Um, uh, how well you did with a clean pocket, how well you did when you don't have a clean pocket. And like Bo Nix is like camped out on the top left corner of it um, where his, his performance with a clean pocket is, you know, spectacular. His performance with a not clean pocket is, Oh boy. Um, and, you know, if you were looking for a reason to believe that that guy is going to do better in a different system with different guys protecting him going up against different defenses, like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of statistical um, backup for that position. Yeah. And, and like it, last thing on this subject is if you just look at our schedule and especially in conference and look at the front sevens we're going to be going against, like the worst front seven he's seen in the SEC is probably on par with the best front seven he's going to see in the Pac-12 North. Yes. All right, so moving on to a position group that is going to look very different in 2022 than it looked in 2021, the running back room. There's two new additions, right? So you had Noah Winnington and Bucky Irvin, and I guess you also had Jordan James, who's a true freshman, but he's coming into a room with four sophomores. So you've got you've got numbers now, but you also have guys that have some college experience. Like, I don't have the numbers in front of me currently, but Bucky ran for about 750 yards last year, and Whittington was somewhere in the range of 700 as well. So you're adding two guys who basically operated as first backs last year, especially uh, Irvin after the injury to Mohamed Ibrahim at Minnesota. Uh, and then you bring back Cardwell, who gave us good reps last year, and Dollars is coming off of the the Achilles injury. Hilfiday, what are your thoughts on the running back room? Uh, it looks pretty solid to me, you know, for all those reasons. I, I think that, you know, Irving and Whittington are very solid. I, I, the other thing about them is that they're just their yards per carry. It, it, one of the few raw stats that I'm willing to just rely on is running back yards per carry. Like it, it winds up being very predictive. Um, and, you know, both Irvings and Whittington's and Byron Cardwell's last year, you know, they're all above uh, six. Um, or Cardwell 6.8, Whittington 6.1, Irving is 5.3. Irving is operating in Minnesota's, um, you know, power run system. That's, you know, pretty much as expected. Uh, you know, 
And on top of that, you know, you have Sean Dollars, the change of pace back. Uh, Jordan James, you know, the true freshman. Hell, they got a couple of walk-ons who don't look half bad in, in Hassan Ritter and Cobbins, um, uh, you know, in case, you know, stuff really goes wrong. So the depth, you know, definitely strikes me as, as adequate. You know, if I were looking at this room uh, in any other room in the Pac-12, I, you know, I wouldn't be shutting up about it when I was do- I'm doing my Pac-12 previews. I would be raving about this room. So, uh, yeah, does it meet the Oregon standard? Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I think, I think as a holistic room, like, um, as a, like, some of its parts, I think it's better than the room we had last year. Um, just from the sense that I think we have a more variety of skill set than we did a year ago. Like, a guy like Irvin, Irvin isn't going to run away from anybody, but he's got He's an excellent twenty-yard runner, like, and he is tough as hell to bring down in the in the short area. So he's going to be a great guy to be able to throw in there, short yard situations. He's a great every-down back. Uh, I haven't seen a ton of him catching the ball out of the backfield, but like Noah Whittington, on the other hand, catches the ball fantastically out of the backfield. He's got excellent long speed and burst, and he can house it from anywhere. So like, you're adding a bunch of of skill sets to the room that gives more diversity. Um, I'm also really not seeing any players that are in that room that are one-dimensional guys. Like we've seen Sean Dollars catch the ball at the backfield well. We've seen Cardwell catch the ball. Um, the the main thing that that remains to be seen with these guys is the ability to block, and that that's something that's taught. Not <laughs> guys usually don't come into college as running backs as exceptional blockers. That's something that uh, that gets coached into them, and and they have to want to do it, but. Um, I, I have a lot of faith in Coach Lachlan to to drag that out of him. And then one guy that I think needs to be talked about kind of in this room is Sean or uh, Seven McGee. Mm. He's not a running back, but I do anticipate that he'll probably get a couple carries a game. Um, he's going to be playing that hybrid slot role where again he's more get a bunch of sweep carries like he's built it, for it. Exactly. Yeah, he's a guy to me. He kind of reminds me of like uh, Braylon Addison or. Uh, maybe even a Byron Marshall back in the day in the sense that like he's a touch guy, right? Like you want to get him the ball 12 to 13 times a game. It doesn't really matter how you do it, whether it's throwing the ball or handing it off. But having him in the slot gives a lot of flexibility offensively for Coach Dillingham because he can he can go from 11 personnel to 21 personnel without subbing with emotion, right? And so that's uh, I think that's something that we will see this year. Um, and so he kind of needs to factor into the running back room in a way, even though he's not a running back anymore. Last thing I'll say about the running back room is you mentioned that you have faith in Carlos Lachlan. I do too. And like that sort of comes as a surprise. He was, you know, I previewed all of Oregon's new coaching staff this winter. And that was the guy who was on the top of my list of like, who the heck is this guy? Cause he, he, I mean, he'd been a FBS coach for one year and that was last year at Western Kentucky. And then I turned on the tape, uh, you know, not just Noah Whittington, but there's three other backs in that room. And he totally hit the reset button. Like he inherited a bad running back room in 2020. It's why the, the head coach at WKU made the change. Um, and, and you see very clearly on film, all four of those backs using the same technique in, you know, the, the, the way they cut, the way that they uh, protect the ball, the way that they block. Um, like, I think he's a strong coach, like by strong coach. I mean, like, I think he strongly imprints on, uh, on his players. Um, and I think that, you know, if, uh, recruiting is any sort of referendum on how you coach in terms of like how you make a connection with a kid. Um, yeah, th- that guy's been my number one, like turnaround in terms of like, who is this guy to like, I have supreme faith in this guy. Yeah. I mean, he turned that running back room over in six months. Like he, he walked into a situation where there was some guys from out of the region who'd been recruited by the old staff who left with, we're talking about Trey Benson here. 
Um, and we were in a situation at the beginning of Ju January where all we had was Cardwell and dollars in terms of scholarship running backs coming back, right? Well, by February, we signed a four-star running back from Tennessee who was committed to Georgia at the time of his hiring. And then we went out and hit hit the portal for two really quality backs with multiple years of eligibility who, in like large sample sizes, have already proven to be FBS-level starters. So like he he has done an exceptional job in a very short amount of time of one introducing himself to 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 Oregon fans as a very very strong recruiter, um, but under like being able to turn over a room so quickly is just unbelievably impressive to me. All right, and then shifting gears to the tight end room now, that's another one where there's a bit of a transformation going on with the two freshmen from last year kind of solidifying their their spot in the rotation. Eth, what do you think about a tight end room? Uh, well, you know, there's no real, you know, new guys or departures. I mean, there's sort of a departure in the sense that DJ Johnson looks like he's going to be fully, you know, on the defensive line again. But, um, you know, I was super impressed with uh, Ferguson and Matavau, uh last year as true freshmen. Um, uh, you don't. It is extremely rare to see, you know, one true freshman doing as well as those guys did and to have two of them at the same time is astonishing. Um, I'm still kind of waiting on it uh, for Spencer Webb. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see him, uh, you know, really improve his blocking or just, you know, for the new staff to commit to just splitting him out and play him in sort of the Mike Gusecki type of type tight end role. Um, and, and then the, you know, the rest of the room is, is, uh, Cam McCormick and Patrick Herbert, both of whom have, have, uh, struggled with injuries. Um, and I don't know, we'll just have to wait and see, but even if those guys never play, you know, a, a three headed monster in Ferguson, Webb and Madaval, like I might be the best tight end room in the conference. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like last year, Madaval and Ferguson playing as true freshmen, now given they were both early enrollees. So they did go through a full winter and summer, um, off season program last year. They they were both more positional blockers than really dominant physically, but you could see the big frames. They were just big puppy dogs out there, right? But they were getting after it, and they were showing the want to block. Um, and again, they were doing it right from a technical standpoint, and they were they were sticking on guys and playing good positional football. But I would expect that the physical maturation that takes place between year one and year two for players like that is going to be pretty massive. I mean, I've, I've seen, we saw them in the spring. I mean, those kids are both genuinely 20 pounds heavier than they were a year ago, at least with Matsuvao probably being 30. Like he's, he is a big, big kid now. Um, and they both can really run and, and press the field, press vertically. And I don't think that the offense in the way that uh, it was executed last year really lended itself to showing off their skill set. But mm -hmm. I think that, this hopefully with a, a new offensive coordinator and even more so with a new quarterback, their vertical skill sets can show can show because those guys can both really press the seam. They're both really tough to match up on and they both can play on ball or off ball, which means that you're not really giving a tell when they're on the field in regards to what kind of stuff you're going to be doing offensively. So I think those two really excite me. Webb, can, he can run and he can catch, but I need to see him want to block. And for me, he'll always be the third guy until that becomes a reality. In terms of schematic usage, I 100% agree with you. I am a big fan of Joe Moorhead's offense. The one thing that I was really never really understood um, about what he was doing last year is why he wasn't having the tight ends go downfield because we've seen him use tight ends extensively in previous stops at, you know, at Penn State and at Mississippi State. In fact, his last game ever that he coached at Mississippi State completely changed the playbook to use tight ends uh, a lot more. It was kind of bizarre. Anyway, uh, 
I, I think that, that, you know, even though this position group is not really changing, you know, like I said, there, there's no additions, there's no subtractions. Um, I think that, and on top of that, I, I am still a little in the dark about what kind of offense Kenny Dillingham is going to want to run. You know, the best that I have to reference is, you know, going back and watching his tape, you know, when he was working under Mike Norvell, I think it'll probably be a variation on Norvell's offense. The one big difference that I noticed there, which both Norvell's offense and Moorhead's offense are very RPO heavy. The one real big difference that I noticed between them is that Norvell was sending tight ends down the field and, you know, to catch seam passes or that like the way that they use RPOs uh, to the tight ends, you know, Moorhead would use them laterally, like that triple option mm-hmm. RPO and, and Norvell was sending them downfield. In fact, I, I put out a, a tweet a little while ago of them using the tight end uh, uh, to great effect against Miami, which it seems like a lot of Oregon fans enjoyed seeing Miami suffer. I'm not sure why that should have been. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. I think that this position group may be the biggest single change that you see in the way that the offense is used, even though the personnel is, you know, pretty going to be pretty similar. I think it's a mixture of two things coming together, right? Like the offense using the tight ends in a way that, that they get to press vertically more often, but also just the physical maturation and the coming of age of the two top guys. Um, I, I, I want to agree with you, though. Like I, I'm probably the leader. If I'm not the leader, I'm the co-leader with you of the Joe Moorhead fan club, given what we were, what we were able to do in terms of throwing the ball vertically last year and the type of production that we were able to get out of a run game. That was all we really had. I, I think he did an exceptional job. I will say that I, I've been watching a bunch of clinics. It's clinic season, and uh, watched Dillingham do an RPO clinic, and he talked about the way that he uses the tight ends in the RPO game, and the way that Norvell and they had they had done it at both Memphis and Florida State. And I agree that there's certainly a uh, premium on the ability for tight ends to stretch the the field vertically in the way that they use the RPO. So I think that's something that's going to be. I wouldn't be surprised if both of those guys double their production from a year ago. Yeah, I, I think there's a real potential for a radical transformation here where, you know, other groups I, I'm sort of expecting to see a continuation or minor tweaks or like maybe personnel dictate stuff. Here, I really think schematically you could see some big differences. Another position group that's going to look quite a bit different on the field this year for Oregon, of course, is the wide receiver room. A lot of um, last year's guys who dominated the snaps have moved on and we've got some of the younger freshmen from last year as well, some new new players to the roster joining. So Hithliday, what do you think about the wide receivers? Um, well, like you said, it's pretty young. Um, you know, the, the, the most established of the guys is probably Chris Hudson and, and he hasn't, you know, and he only joined the team in 2020. Um, uh, you know, Isaiah Crocker is older than he is, but he only really started playing a little bit last year. Um, it, it the, it is going to be interesting to see how it plays out. They have more wide receivers than they have, you know, the, you know, you can't put seven wide receivers on the field. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how the pecking order goes because you have, you know, guys like Hudson and Crocker who've been around for a while. You've got seven McGee who QB already mentioned is sort of a, you know, that guy might be playing a bunch of different roles. Um, you've got the, you know, the twin or, or the triple towers who came in the 2021 class in, in Franklin Thornton and Brevard, um, who like, look like they've got all the talent and size in the world. And we just, you know, we need to see it as now, now they're going to be, you know, sophomores instead of freshmen. Um, 
you know, and then, you know, add to all of that, uh, or the, you know, the other old hand I, I should mention is, is Josh Delgado. He wasn't getting catches last year. I'm actually not really sure why that was, but he wasn't. Um, and then, you know, add to that uh, a bunch of interesting newcomers, you know, Chase Coda uh, from UCLA, who, you know, that guy was pretty important to Chip Kelly, the way that Chip Kelly ran that offense, because he's very, like, sure receiver. Um, Caleb Chapman, who's, you know, the hero of Texas A&M for a couple of games and then was injured. So like, we sort of have a hard time gauging, uh, what he's going to be, uh, Kyler Casper, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, came in, um, in reclassified justice Lowe uh, as part of the 2022 class. Um, and there's a hell, there's a Juco Malachi Russell, um, who came in all, I think he, he's non-scholarship. So it's a very large room, um, of, of, you know, a bunch of guys who have established that they can catch the ball at one point or another in their careers. And it's really going to be interesting what the mix of youth versus experience is going to be. I, I don't know how to answer that question at this point. What do you think you'd be? Well, going into the spring and then seeing kind of how it played out during the spring, it was pretty clear that they're like the receivers are in two buckets, right? You have your outside and your inside receivers and that, and the, on the outside, the top three was Franklin Thornton and, uh, Coda for the spring. Like those were the three guys that were primarily getting the reps with the ones, and they were the guys that were were playing playing the best in the slot. It was Hudson and McGee at the top, and then everybody else kind of fell into that second group on the outside and the in, and with Delgado being the third guy on the inside. Well, you add Chapman, you add Casper to that room. How does where do they fit? Do guys from that second group? Does a guy like Brevard with another off season and a fall camp? jump up into that top rotation because the way I look at it in the same way you said is that you're only going to be able to rotate so many guys in this room. And so there's going to be guys that are on the outside looking in of a, of a top heavy rotation. Who's going to be the fourth guy in the, in on the outside. Um, I think that the inside is pretty much settled and set because you have a really unique skill set with seven McGee. And then you have Chris Hudson, who's proven to be a pretty solid player already. Um, I, I'm excited about this room. The the talent and the upside flashed at times last year, like just the second half of the Oklahoma game by itself with Thornton and Franklin. I mean, you you see what those kids can do from an athletic standpoint. I think that Coda brings a really reliable presence, and I, I don't mean this to downplay him because I think it's an important role, um, but he's not a guy that's ever created a ton of separation in this conference as, uh, on the outside, but what he does do is he plays positionally really well. He, he frames frames the ball up and, and boxes defenders at almost like those old Stanford receivers and he catches absolutely everything in his orbit. So like having a guy like that to go with a, a younger, more explosive and possibly more inconsistent group of, of guys that, that can stretch the field vertically will be, will be a really important role on this team. And so I, I have a feeling that the way it's going to work out is Chapman will end up kind of joining that top four on the outside, just based mm -hmm. on his experience. He's looking for that opportunity in the portal um, if he can stay healthy, I'm, I really like him. Like he's one of those guys. I mean, first of all, he's genuinely huge. He, he's all of six, five. He's probably 210 pounds. He's, he's a big kid and he can actually really run. Um, but I mean, he's had two straight knee injuries and back to back years, or it might've been a knee and an ankle, but regardless, he's been unable to stay on the field for any serious length of time. And so him staying healthy, I think I could see him break into a rotation. I mean, we'll see what we have with Casper. I mean, as a, as a reclassified 17-year-old stepping onto college campus for the first time, I think a red shirt seems pretty likely. But, I mean, you never know. A kid with that kind of talent could just step onto the field and be lights out and, and work his way into the top half of that rotation. 
I mean, I, it's hard for me to believe that they screw up the outside wide receivers because there's just so much talent there. And between the high floor guys, you know, the, the, the transfers and the high ceiling guys, you know, the freshmen, um, it's just, you know, I, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but I, you know, I, I, it, it's hard to imagine them screwing it up. Uh, and we're talking about like high you know, we're talking about high four stars for all of these guys, you know, like it, the entire wide receiver room inside and outside is entirely made up of four stars, which I, I'm not sure that's ever happened for Oregon before. Um, it, it, you know, but the outside receivers, just like the, both the floor and the ceiling is really high. The inside is sort of, that's where there's a lot more play. I think, um, you know, it is, I think you're right about Hudson. I, you know, I think you're right about Delgado. Um, you know, McGee can be used in a lot of different ways. And, um, and I'm curious to see if Justice Lowe, you know, plays at all. I, I, I don't know. What do you think? I have Justice Lowe classified as an inside guy. What do you think? Um, I think he's probably an inside guy long-term. I just think that with how, I mean, in terms of getting reps in practice and how pared down the, the rotation is going to be, I think he's probably going to start off outside. Um, but, I mean, it's really tough to say. I don't anticipate him. I mean, if he's playing this year, it means we've had a rash of injuries. Um, I, this is this is something I'd be curious to get your take on. Like, Chris Hudson, to me, was instantly a far more effective and threatening presence when he was playing in the slot last year. Like, we wasted a lot of time with him playing outside, and sometimes I, it was by necessity. I agree. Necessity. He's 5'11". I don't understand why he was playing outside. Yeah, and so by by necessity, maybe because of injury, who knows what the deal was? I know Del Delgado was unavailable for the vast majority of last year, um, but when Hudson went into the slot, all of a sudden, like his his short area burst and his quickness and his ability to just get onto somebody's toes and break them off became like a legitimate threat, and and he wasn't being asked to try to win fifty fifty jump balls against corners that were the same size as him, um, and so. I, the the slot competition for who's going to be the number one guy is one of the competitions I'm actually really excited to see uh, between McGee and Hudson and 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 I wouldn't factor Delgado entirely out of that because here's the deal when Delgado's played he's been he's been pretty good yeah um he's not a super productive guy at any point in his career at Oregon but I mean again you got to consider the context with that but he's proven to be a pretty good route runner on tape so uh but I think that. The top two in Hudson and McGee will both play a ton of snaps. It'll probably be pretty much a 50-50 rotation there, and who the starter is is pretty much irrelevant because they're both going to play and they're both going to get the ball. Uh, but the outside seems to be like a total Hunger game situation where like we kind of know who going into the fall, into fall camp is up there in that top top group that's going to get a bunch of snaps, but I don't see us playing a lot of 10 personnel, so there's only going to be th two of those guys on the field at a time. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a substantial amount of talent and on paper, this is the best receiver room we've had. Yeah. And, and, and just the ranginess of it too, you know, like, you know, we, we just went through several years in which guys like, you know, Johnny Johnson, you know, and Micah Pittman are guys playing on the outside, you know, and I'm not, you know, trying to, to, to talk crap about those guys. Just like, there's a difference between those dudes and Dante Thornton, who's like five, six inches taller than them, you know, like just, it changes the type of offense that you can run. Yeah. Give a lot of credit to Brian McClendon. And then even as much credit to junior Adams coming in, like they've like the Oregon receiver room has been a very weird situation for pretty much all of human history. Right. And so for them to finally recruit and, and kind of bring in this group of guys that has the variety of skill sets necessary to be a legitimate, like top 
10 group in college football is, is really impressive. Um, we have a bunch of true alpha X and Z receivers now. We have those small slot guys, um, but we also have a variety. We, we've got some guys that can really take the top off and stretch a defense. So I, this is a room that I'm extremely excited to see. And really, it's on Bo Nix to be able to get them the ball at this point. Like that, I, the, the, in my opinion, this room in the quarterback position will drive the offense. I already know what we have in the run game, and we'll, we'll get into the offensive line here in just a moment. I'm very, very confident that that, that group is going to be consistent and something we could depend on. And so this is really what's going to be able to dictate the, the ceiling for this team offensively. So speaking of the offensive line, we will move on to that group now, which, which is certainly the most stable group from a year-over-year standpoint on the offense. Well, certainly, you know, the returning, you know, the five guys I would, I would say are starters, you know, and, and we pretty much know the positions they're going to play. I think unlike uh, what Alex Mirabal was doing last year, which uh, Alex Mirabal was rotating guys and, and sort of cross training them multiple positions and swapping them in and out on a drive by drive basis, which is extremely unconventional. Um, and yet it was working, you know, Oregon's offensive line stats are, you know, off the charts in 2021. And I don't know, maybe you should write a book, like maybe the, the conventional wisdom needs to be reevaluated. But at any rate, I don't expect that to happen in 2022 under Adrian Clem. I, I expect that it, you're just going to see TJ Bass at left tackle, Ryan Walk at left, left guard, uh, Alex Forsyth at center, Stephen Jones at right guard, uh, Malasala Umvailu at right tackle. And that's that. Um, QB, do you see any reason to disagree? No, I don't disagree, and I would I would almost consider uh, Dawson Jarmio like like a sixth like a sixth man starter, mm -hmm. a swing man because I, I I don't know if he can snap, but he has played pretty much every position on the offensive line other than center. He actually um, did snap a few times in 2019 in garbage time. I I clipped it out and put it in an article. So yeah, so he's literally the sixth man, which is nice because he's played a bunch of quality snaps. He's been consistent when he's played. So like you have your, your starting five, but you also have a sixth guy that's got, I'm sure he's got starts under his belt. I mean, I'm sure you've got the numbers, sure. but. And Jackson agree. Powers Johnson, who I think, you know, is, <laughs> Hey, that guy was playing defensive line that they'll, he'll do whatever they ask of him. Um, and then there's a couple other guys who I think, you know, in terms of backups, they haven't really played much, but like, you know, they're both the recruiting rankings and just my confidence in them is pretty high. Bram Walden, Marcus Wal uh, Harper. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, if they're getting to those guys, then there's probably some trouble. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think the, the, the bottom falls out either. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Oregon has been recruiting well at this position for a long time. A lot of those guys have transferred out, but a lot of them are, you know, still in place. And, and at least for 2022, you know, this offensive line, you know, is very high confidence group, very high depth group. Yeah, I agree. Like JPJ, especially uh, Jackson Powers Johnson last year, I believe he started the UCLA game. I can't remember who was out, but um, he was exceptional as a true freshman for, for an interior offensive lineman to play as well as he played last year was one of the more impressive performances on the team last year. Um, and he ended up getting banged up and had to move to nose tackle for the Oklahoma game because so few bodies were available in the defensive line. Um, and he's he's kind of moved around a bit in the spring between offensive and defensive line. I know he settled back in on offense. I think he's the heir apparent at center um, to when Alex Forsyth moves on after this season. But I think he gives flexibility to be like the next guy up at any of the three interior spots. 
And you mentioned Bram Walden, and, and I'm really glad to finally hear that he's getting healthy because he's practiced a total of maybe three times since he's been at Oregon. And so the fact that he's finally, like I saw him as a guy with chronic shoulder injuries and had to have a shoulder surgery during the offseason, seeing him doing overhead presses in one of the weight room hype videos that they released earlier this, this week was like, oh my gosh, like he might actually be able to stay healthy enough to play this year. Um, and so, like, a kid like that coming out of high school was obviously a very highly regarded guy. I loved his tape. So I want to see what he can do in fall camp. Like, to me, I would not be counting on him yet uh, just because he hasn't really played. Like, he's basically a true freshman from a from a practice standpoint. Like, he's going into, like, his – he's still on one hand in terms of the amount of times he's been a full participant in practice. So um, Marcus Harper, though, is a guy who I think is ready to go. Like, he's been in the program. I think this is his third year – going into his third year in the program like and he's he's been a guy that whenever i've been able to go to practice or uh spring games and things of that nature has been like he just gets a little bit better every time and he's got a great frame and i think he's a guy that you would be able to rely on on the interior and then you have the wild card right like you bring in the five-star true freshman now he wasn't an early enrollee so connerly is just going to be showing up here uh the team reports uh not this coming monday but the following monday um like with a kid of that like talent ceiling, like where does he factor into this rotation? I think he's probably the second tackle behind Jarmio in as a true freshman. Um, hopefully we're not in a position where he has to play, but if he's ready to play, I could see him absolutely working his way um, into that, into that too deep. Yeah. And I mean, never say never with true freshman on the offensive line. We saw it with Panay Sewell. We saw it with Jackson Powers Johnson. Like yeah. if, if that's your best option, you know, it's a new coaching staff, you know, so I can't say this for certain, but like, you know, Oregon has seen its share of true freshmen playing on the offensive line and, and playing well. That's the, the only mix up I could possibly see, right? Is if Connerly comes in, this is to the starting lineup. If Connerly comes in and is just exceptional, like exceptional, like in the same way that Panay was as a fallen rolly true freshman. And I don't, I'm not expecting this. I would, if I was handicapping this, I would set the odds extremely low for this. Um, but if he does come in and is that guy right away, I have a feeling that they'll figure out a way to get him on the field. And I, and I think what it would allow for is for Bass to play his more natural position of guard who gets bumped out of the starting lineup though. I don't know because both guys have played both walk and Jones have played a lot of consistently good reps for us. So that's, that's the main reason why I don't see it happening. I think he could be pretty exceptional as a freshman and still not start just because we have so much experience and we've got guys that have been really consistently good. I think the other, you know, really nice thing about, uh, the stability, uh, well, with what Oregon's got is that the, they are returning all these starters. They are returning some experienced backups. The development of them has pretty much, you know, I would say is more or less locked in, uh, at this point. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who are concerned about Adrian Clem's uh, offensive line performances uh, when he was coaching at UCLA. And, and frankly, I'm one of them. I did a whole film study project on it, and I was sort of like, this is not the Oregon standard for technique, you know, consistently uh, you know, playing assignment football. Um, I don't think that really matters for 2022. Um, like even if somehow, and I don't really think this is the case, but even if somehow Adrian Clem were poison and made offensive linemen worse, uh, you're not going to see it in 2022. And like I said, I don't think that's really true. Um, what you are going to see is him stocking the cabinet with a lot of very high quality dudes and not just like, 
not just, you know, high recruiting ranking dudes, but also like the, if there's one thing that's very clear from Clem's record is that he has, you know, the eye, um, to spot a kid in high school and project that that's an NFL player in like six, seven years. Um, because he put a huge number of his UCLA players into the NFL and that's with them, you know, like I said, not lighting the world on fire as blockers at the college level. Um, and for me, there's really only one question mark for this offensive line. It's not, you know, the guys who are returning. It's not who are the backups. It's not how good the new kids are going to be. Um, it's not whether they can recruit. You know, the, the one question I have is like, is did Adrian Clem get better at teaching consistent technique um, in his time uh, since UCLA? Uh, you got to take on that QB. Yeah, well, so I think there's a couple things that need to be said about this, right? So, like, when he was hired as the offensive line coach at UCLA, he inherited a dumpster fire of a room, right? Oh, yeah. So, the fact that he was able to recruit the level of player that he was was, like, a, a, honestly, a, a really impressive turnaround. I mean, he, I think he's got, was it not eight or nine active NFL players right now? I know, it's crazy. From, from his four years at UCLA. Um, and so, like, he was, but he was forced to play a lot of those kids well before they were ready, and I think that that might be a, a part of the reason why the you you might think that they were technically not as sound because the the the, the thing he has going for him at Oregon is he's inherited a very very stable room, right? He's got a group of guys with a bunch of experience. He's got backups with a bunch of experience, and now he's bringing in his guys. Well, those guys aren't going to have to play. Like Josh Connerly doesn't need to be our, our starting left tackle as a true freshman. Um, so getting those guys up to speed instead of having a patchwork group where guys are uh, a bunch of different levels from a talent and experience standpoint is is a massive benefit. I, I personally don't um, buy the the idea that that Clem's a bad offensive line coach because you don't go to the NFL for your recruiting ability, right? So like he goes to the NFL and not only does he go to the NFL, but he gets promoted after a year to being the head offensive line coach for the Steelers. Um, and, and I've seen, again, I've seen him clinic. I know what he teaches. It's not a matter of teaching the wrong things. And, and again, if you're putting guys in the league at the click, he's putting them in. I, I think that there's obviously some, some technical proficiency there. Um, the, the biggest piece is I think that here with the existing culture, with the existing roster, he is going to have the freedom to only play guys that are ready to play, which is going to reflect better on the overall unit than playing a bunch of guys that probably weren't ready to play next to some guys that were ready to play at UCLA. Yeah, the thing that sort of strikes me, and I think is, uh, uh, well, I think there's frequently a fan misconception that like position coaches are teaching them wrong. You, it's. I mean, I'm not going to say that never happens. There's some eccentrics out there in the profession, but <laughs> you know, 99% of the time, all position coaches are teaching basically exactly the same stuff. And it's not a question of whether the position coach knows what they're doing in terms of like, knows the correct technique. You know, it's, it's the old coaching aphorism. It's not what you know, it's what you can teach. Yep. And the thing that I was seeing at UCLA and you know, I, there are a variety of reasons why this could be, but the thing that I was seeing was not, these guys are playing badly or using the incorrect technique, what I was seeing was they're just sloppy. Like they'd play poor technique more frequently than they ought to, you know, like the, the way that I chart it, you know, it basically works out to, if you're making a, a technique mistake, you know, less than 10% of the time, then that's really good. If you're making it, uh, you know, more than about 12% of the time, then you're getting into bad territory. So like the difference between good and bad is not, you know, you're 
this guy's playing really well all the time. And this guy's playing really poorly all the time. It's like a, a 5% frequency swing in, in when your, you know, your technique slips you, you know? And, and so, you know, it really is just a matter of, of making, of, of the ability to teach your players to consistently perform to the standard that, um, that is expected of them and it, not, do you know what the right thing to teach is? Everybody knows what the right thing to teach is like that. that that's a total misconception well, on a, on a baseline level. I agree with you because, but there, there is differences in coaching acumen. Like there's like every, like every coach at the power five level generally has an idea of what is supposed to be done technically. But I could tell you, like if, if I gave like, if you watched all these clinics and all these different coaches and saw what they were doing with guys, there is clearly a, a level of nuance that is understood by some that is not understood by others right mm. like there is the like the johnny clinic guy where it's like oh i watch a bunch of clinics i can i can put guys through these drills and then there's the guys that understand the why the how and they can express that to the kids and get the kids to buy in i also think that that was the problem that you're talking about right now was a problem that was widespread across the entire ucla football team right like the the inconsistency the the, the overall lack of cultural discipline yeah, that team which, struck me as a team that didn't know how to practice Exactly. And I think that I, I think that at least some of that, and I'm not saying I'm not explaining it all away, <clears throat> some of that can be explained away as this team had a bad, broad overall cultural problem that was well above the offensive line coach and, and seeped into every position group in that team. Because that was that's what it looked like to me watching them play. Um and, and again, like guys get better. Um I, I I have a lot of confidence in Coach Clum. If I'm honest, maybe I'm a homer for that. But from the tape I've watched, from the stuff I've seen on him and other coaches, um, I, I have a lot of faith in his acumen as a coach. Um, and I think that, again, he's stepping into a much better both cultural and personnel situation at Oregon than he was in it with Jim Moore at UCLA. I guess I'll put it this way. You know, I, I watch a lot of Pac-12 film. I sort of contrary to what I was just saying, I, I agree with you that there are bad offensive line coaches who are actively teaching technique that they should not technique, uh, that they should not be teaching. Um, if you need an example of that, uh, uh go a couple <laughs> hours North, uh, yep. why Washington retains Scott Huff of all people, you know, Oregon fans uh, ought to be thanking their lucky stars that that was the dude they decided to retain because I think he's actively teaching the wrong technique. Uh, I can say for as many complaints as I had about the way that UCLA, uh, offensive linemen were playing in the two years that I studied for my article on Adrian Clem that like, I was not seeing Scott Huff stuff. I was not seeing like, no, you're teaching them wrong. Like what I was seeing was, you know, 80% of the time, those guys are doing exactly what you would want them to do. And it's just the, the frequency with which that they, you know, were, were letting their technique slip was higher than I would like to see. That's simply a matter of teaching consistency. It's not a matter of teaching the wrong things. Yep, and I think that's something that one can be improved on over time, and two is a reflect a direct reflection of the football program. Um, and again, I'm not I'm again not trying to explain away. There's obviously some level of of accountability that's on the coach, uh, but again, like UCLA as a football program was inconsistent at every position group across the board, and I think that a lot of that is a lack of discipline and poor team culture. I mean, we've we've seen that at Oregon at times, right, over the sure. years. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see this group. Uh, one thing I'm extremely confident in is, is not only Clem's ability to identify, but to close on guys that have very, very high ceilings, NFL-type projectables, because the, the class that he signed and basically 
a month and a half last year. Um, and then the guys that he's targeted so far in this cycle, I, I've seen a, a, a broader change in recruiting approach. Um, or Mario Cristobal and staff moved towards this, but it seems that Lanning, Malco, and company have completely committed to it. Is like, if you're a traits guy, like if you're like if you love tools, like this is the that this is all that this staff cares about. They are recruiting traits and tools. They want toolsy players, and then they'll they're gonna fit them into their systems, and they're gonna teach them. How, they're gonna they're gonna coach them up. And I think that's the best way to build a football team, especially at a place like Oregon. That's the same model that Matt Rule took at Baylor, and look what it did there. Um, you wanna if you wanna you wanna compete at the highest level, you wanna be able to line up on on a on a on a afternoon in early January and win a semifinal game and go to the national title, you're going to have to have like guys with the traits and the tools to line up and play against those teams. I love the approach. Yeah, none of the development or technique stuff matters if you don't have the talent and the the correct bodies types in the and and the roster management to have identified and put them in a position to win. Like all all of that stuff is upstream of uh, you know, the, the, the technique and the, and the consistency of technique. So, I mean, even if you believe in the worst case scenario about Adrian Clem, like it's still, you know, you're still getting about 95% of the coach that you want, um, in terms of getting the right guys into the right position with the right body types of the right tools. Uh, and, and on top of that, he's inheriting, you know, an offensive line, which is very well proven and, and, uh, and sets up his development cycle for the future players, you know, pretty nicely. So, you know, you probably shouldn't buy the maximalist claims about him. Yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, I have a lot of confidence in the staff and the way it was assembled. And that concludes part one of the Oregon roster preview for 2022. Be sure to listen next week for part two as QB and Hithliday break down the Oregon defense. All right, so we've got some listener questions from our audience that we're going to go over, and Hithliday has graciously decided to join us and stay on for these as well, so we'll get his input as well as QB and mine's. First question comes from Tyler Jones. Is there any scenario where USC joins the Big Ten and Oregon does not? QB, let's start with you. Yes, I don't think it's super likely. So the, the way that this would work would be if somehow they could get Notre Dame out of the ACC, like first right of refusal deal, and just take USC and, and Notre Dame go to 16. Is that like from a, from a revenue standpoint, that is the best value proposition for the Big Ten? Um, but I don't think, I don't think that's even possible with the way the ACC deal is structured. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the big 10 would want more than just one property on the West coast. If they were to expand this way. I I agree. I don't, I don't have anything to add. It's hard to imagine the big 10 not wanting, uh, to do it in, in a partner type of system. I would just add that if you're Oregon or an Oregon fan, you would absolutely hope not. Because this would be very bad news for Oregon and the rest of the Pac-12. But I agree. I think it's very, very unlikely. Okay, next up from Be the Duck. Which side of the ball do you think will be stronger for Oregon in 2022? Offense or defense? So I'll start with you this time, Hithliday. Well, I think if you're playing the percentages, you'd have to say the defense. Um, simply because there's fewer questions. Um, you know, we still... 
We don't know exactly what kind of offense that Kenny Dillingham wants to run. We don't know if Bo Nix or whoever the, we don't even know who the quarterback is going to be. You know, the wide receiver core is young. Um, you know, there, there's simply more question marks about the offense. And so, you know, play the odds. The defense should be very good. We have a lot of certainty about it. Uh, you know, it, it, it it ought to be better. There are universes in which this offense is absolutely lights out and outplays them. Um, I don't know if we live in one of those universes, but good. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take the opposite. I'm going to take the offense. So offense was 16th in F plus last year. Defense was 57th. I don't see this offense being worse than it was a year ago, but even if it is like, I think if I'm playing the odds, I would say that it falls um, a couple spots, whereas the defense needs to take a much larger jump. I think it's far more likely that both of these units finish in the top 20 next year than not, though. Uh, here's here's actually my really sneaky like side bet prediction. I think that the in advanced statistics, the offense will finish higher than the defense will, and fans will feel it's the other way around. I think the defense will have more like wowza, you know, type plays that fans love to fixate on. Um, and the offense will simply be, you know, quietly uh, efficient and, and effective. Yeah, I think just adding like 70% of a competent passing game to what we were already doing offensively last year um, makes us, I mean, I, I think this could be a top 10 offense. If, 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 if Bo Nix hits, this is a top 10 offense. So, well, I mean, this offense will go as far as Bo Nix can take it. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, there were two elements missing from uh, last year's team. Uh, One is a downfield passing game on the offense, and the other is everything that the inside linebackers bring you on the the defense. We are fairly confident that the defenses, uh, the the inside linebackers are healthy again. And so therefore it's a, you know, high degree of certainty that there will be a large defensive improvement. Um, the offense doesn't have much more to improve. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you noted their, their offensive F plus rating. I feel like most fans who watched Oregon felt like it was an offense in the eighties. It was not, it was extremely efficient. Um, and it's hard to improve upon that, but if they are hitting downfield pass, and that's a question mark we don't know but if they are yeah watch out yeah i'm gonna agree with both of you on this one i think from a proven a proven perspective i think the talent and the coaching on defense both both are a lot more proven than than their counterparts on the offense so i think the defense will be a stronger unit um at least from a um an optics perspective and i think from a from an advanced statistics perspective it will take a much bigger jump up um than than the offense will as you mentioned it's already a top 20 offense so i think the efficiency of the offense may not be as good as last year but the explosiveness and and the dynamic nature of the offense i think should be much much better at least we better hope so from an oregon perspective yeah, and I think like you have to consider that the, that the 16th-ranked offense is also heavily, heavily weighted down by the performances against Utah twice, right? And so um, I, I'm really I'm interested to see what both these units end up bearing out because going, like, for context, Utah was 20th and 11th, 20th on defense, 11th on offense last year. Um, I would expect that we'll finish higher than both, higher than them on both sides of the ball this year. The other thing to keep in mind is that Oregon generally plays better offenses than it plays defenses. This is the Pac-12, you know, like for all its problems, they can still light you up, on, you know, on occasion on offense. But the defenses that that Oregon's offense will be playing against in the Pac-12, oh boy, there's not yeah. a lot of great defense in the Pac-12. 
I put a series of tweets out last week. Um, I'm pulling them up right now where I, I gave the top six offenses and defenses in F plus that are on the schedule for this year. Um, what their ratings were last year. And it was, it was pretty interesting. Like the offenses are a lot stronger than the defenses. Now, obviously Georgia. So top six offenses on the schedule based on last year's F plus. So one is Georgia. They were third and a lot of that might surprise some people, but they were actually very efficient offensively. Uh, BYU was seventh. Utah was 11th. UCLA was 13th. Oregon state was 19th and Washington state was 61st. And I anticipate that Washington State will make a pretty big jump this year with Cameron Ward and their new uh, incarnate word offense with that offensive coordinator. Defensively, uh, Georgia was first last year. Utah was 20th. Washington was 34th. Washington State was 43rd. Cal was 48th. And UCLA is all the way down to 72nd. So, like, we're, we're going to be – our defense is going to be tested a lot more than our offense is if, next year from an opponent standpoint. If the top three defense that you face, you are not facing good defenses. Exactly. All right. Next question comes to us from Kelly Gamlin. What will be early season indicators to look for in regards to assessing Lanning's on-field coaching? QB. Um, I think not calling timeouts coming out of TV timeouts or after the end of a start of a quarter would be a good, good start. Like if we can just get some solid clock management and timeout management, especially in a game against Florida or against, sorry, against Georgia, where you have a bunch of it's going to be a pretty high, highly emotional game seeing us play with good discipline and uh, seeing how the how the coaching staff manages uh, situational ball will be good early indicators. The thing that I look for is I'm not sure there's a, a good word for this in the football lexicon, but like your game plan strategy, like how you assess the opponent's strengths and weaknesses and design a week to week plan. I'm not talking about like your overall playbook on offense and defense or like the structure of your offense and defense. I mean, like, what am I going to do this week to beat Washington? And then that's going to be different from what I do, you know, in another week to beat Cal. Um, th that's the sort of stuff that you don't really find out until the game's been played and then you chart it and you run it through the numbers, you know, and, and so I'm not going to be able to live tweet, Hey, this is great live game management, but I will be able to write it up in my articles after games. And like the good show coaches show through on that question, they design game plans that take advantage of their opponent's weaknesses. They don't just do what they do. Cause that's the only thing they know how to do. Uh, that's what I'm going to be looking for. Also like just to, to piggyback off of that a little bit, the, Coach Dillingham specifically on offense has such a well-rounded offensive unit from a personnel standpoint that he's not limited by what he can do. It's more like who, what is the opponent's weakness and how can we exploit that? And so I think that'll be very obvious to see at least offensively, because if Bo Nix is even is, is good, like he doesn't have to be great, but if he's just a good player, like with the, with the, with the amount of running backs, tight ends and receivers that we have available in the offensive line, we return, there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to attack a team in whatever way they're weakest. And one thing I'd add on to that as well is in-game adjustments. Everyone has a plan until you get smacked in the face, right? So how well is Lanning and his staff going to be able to adjust in-game when the original plan maybe doesn't work as well as they thought it, it should? Yeah, and like we're going to be in a situation where teams are going to be preparing for us, and we might be getting different looks from teams and typically... Uh, they show on a week-to-week -week basis teams are going to hold stuff for us. And so the ability to quickly identify and adapt to those types of curveballs uh, will be something that should be pretty evident early on in the season. All right, the next question comes to us from our friend Clayton Baker. CB and Scott, 
What do you think is the most important thing for this staff to get right going forward? You've been demoted to a cornerback, QB. I know this is really disappointing. I Clayton Clayton knows what he's doing here, and it's it's not fair. I don't have the hips or the or the short area quickness to play corner. Um, but we'll we'll let it slide. I'll just presume he was calling me Mister Scott and 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 take the respect. He um, also he also <laughs> he also misspelled thing, so I it's kind of hard to take this seriously. Let's start with you on this one, Hithloday. You know, the the thing that I want to, again, there's not a great term for this, but like, I, I want to see this staff perform self-assessment. Um, I want to see this staff try to figure out what it's bad at. And I don't just mean like you mentioned in-game adjustments a second ago. I mean like in-season adjustments. The biggest criticism that I had for the previous staff was that I didn't think they had a good quarterbacks coach any of the four years that they were here. And I don't think there was any real assessment about we need to separate this out and get a separate, a new quarterbacks coach in order to deal with that. Um, I, I want to see this staff, like the, the biggest area that I think that this staff could improve upon is figure out what is underperforming and make immediate moves to correct it. Everything else I, I think is very much on track and I don't think there's much room to improve. I agree with you. And I think that the one thing that has been the most impressive thing that landing has said is that in a lot of these like early in your tenure media tours, you're just saying the pre same pre scan can stuff all the time. He, he has mentioned on multiple occasions things that make me think that there is a certain level of humility and understanding that they don't know everything and a, and a flexibility and a want to make big adjustments if necessary to get it right. Right. And so that's something that I think was absent, but the biggest thing and the most important thing is quarterback recruiting. You don't get good quarterbacks. You're, you have a very, very, like there's a hard ceiling on how good you can be. So if they, if we want to take the next step as a program, and be a, a perennial playoff contender, national title contender, getting quarterback recruiting and quarterback coaching right absolutely is the most important thing. Yeah, I think you two, two nailed that down. Uh, what, I'll just add one more thing, I guess, for the sake of, of the conversation is uh, coaching hires going forward, right? So this is a great staff. It's hard to, hard to imagine that, that everyone on the staff is going to stay year after year after year. So as those openings come up, nailing those hires – Making sure there are people that add to to what's in the coaching staff already, bring something to the table that can add value and even level up the the team and the structure of the organization even more. Excellent point. I agree. All right. Our last question today is from Skoduck. What are three keys to the Georgia game for Oregon to be able to pull off the upset? And I'll I'll start with this one. I'll start with one and give you guys each one, and then we'll go round robin. So the first one for me is I'm going to say making some explosive plays on offense. I think it's going to be really hard to expect um, the offense to drive down the field multiple times consistently on 10, 12 play drives against the Georgia defense, even even a Georgia defense that is reloading. Um, so I think they're going to need to hit some explosive plays. I think there's going to be opportunities to hit some explosive plays, um, especially against their secondary, who who was not the strength of their defense last year. So when those opportunities come, Bo Nix and, and the receivers have to make those plays. You you took mine, uh, so I'll go with my second pick, which is the, the old standby, stop the run. 
you don't win football games against most teams. If you can't stop the run. You definitely don't win against Georgia. If you can't stop the run like that for, for everything else that they do well, which is just about everything in, including passing the ball. They're actually a, a very efficient and explosive passing offense, which you might not have expected given Stetson Bennett doesn't have like the greatest, uh, uh talent profile that you've ever seen. Um, but, uh, everything for Georgia starts with, uh, running the ball. And, uh, if you can stop the run, uh, you take away most of their uh, sort of offensive tools. So stop the run. All right. Well, you guys took the low hanging fruit, so I'm going to throw it up a little bit more here. I think safety play for us is going to dictate whether or not we win or lose. Uh, I think that Georgia has the three, the best group of tight ends in the country. Uh, I think Brock Bowers, Eric Gilbert and Darnell Washington offer, well, each of them offers something a little bit different, but they are all mismatch problems. Um, and they're going to be able to play 13 personnel, which I think we're going to have to try to match up with with our nickel stuff and our, and our base nickel because they have such diverse skill sets where you have a guy like Brock Bowers who's legitimately as fast as a true X or Z receiver playing tight end. You have a guy like Darnell Washington who has an inline blocker is basically a tackle. And then you have Eric Gilbert who's kind of in the middle and can do both. And so... I think that like this is going to be a game where we find out a lot about what Hill Bridges and Williams bring to the table because they're going to get they're going to get stressed. I think Munkin does a very good job of creating um, mismatches with those guys and structurally moving them around and giving different shifts and looks to to create some confusion. So we're going to have to be dialed in on our keys at safety, and they're going to have to execute at a high level because that like those those tight ends are a problem. Like this is this is like early 2010 Stanford tight ends, except Stanford never had a guy that ran a 4-4 at tight end. So this is this is going to be really interesting. And and like I agree with Hith and, and Doug on both your guys' points. Like that that offensive line for Georgia is extremely talented and massive. And so I need to see us be able to match up and stop the run if we're going to have a chance to win that game. I am certain that Munkin has been watching Oregon's film against Utah where they had three tight ends and against Iowa state in last year's bowl game in which they played three tight ends and Oregon got shredded by them. Now is Oregon going to have the exact same defense as they had the last two years? No, but I am sure that's the film that they watched and are salivating over. I'll throw my next one on here. And I think that's making Stetson Bennett uncomfortable in the pocket. Um, doesn't necessarily mean you have to get a lot of sacks, but you got to get him out of his comfort zone. I think last year when he was under some duress, he made some mistakes. He threw some picks. And I think getting him into those situations where you can maybe capitalize with a forced fumble or an interception could be another big key. Yeah, I agree with that. I, if you're Oregon, like if, if Stetson Benson, if Stetson Bennett plays out of his mind and beats you putting the team on his back, you can live with that. What you can't allow is for that group of running backs behind that offensive line to just slowly steal your soul for four quarters. Like if again, if you get into a game where it's a tight game late and it's it's Stetson Bennett versus Bo Nix, that's the ideal situation. You just you cannot let them control the game on the ground. If you got any other keys. No, but I am going to be writing multiple articles about Georgia going forward. So you're going to have to stay tuned uh, for that one. Well, we will certainly look forward to that. QB, any more from you? No, I, I mean, I think I kind of feel the same way that I did of going into the Ohio State game last year. Where it's like if we get to 35, we've got a pretty good chance to win the game. I think 35 is the number. 
Um, because I, I think that this like people underrate how good this Georgia offense is. We're not going to shut them down to thirteen or twenty one. Like I think, I think that they'll get to thirty. The thing that was remarkable about Georgia's film last year is that they put a lot of teams into garbage time really early. Um, there's it's kind of surprising. I actually have fewer snaps to study for Georgia, even though they played fifteen games. Um, than I, than I have with other teams that only played 12, um, that, that team is usually pretty rested, uh, and only has to play like a quarter or two. Um, I'd like to see Oregon give them a full fight. Uh, I I really want to see this be a four quarter game and I think it should be. Yeah, I agree. There's going to be some like individual matchups that are going to be pretty fun to watch because um, he's not a name that a lot of guys know, but Arian Smith, who's going to be probably the, tr- the the number one outside receiver for Georgia this year is a bona fide like 10 to 100 meter guy and he is fast as hell and so in the even in their 13 personnel he'll be on the field so let's see what let's see how gonzo matches up um because he's gonna have to he's gonna have to strap it up well we are gonna have plenty more to talk about in regards to georgia and the the game in atlanta on september 3rd throughout the summer and and of course in the week leading up to that game hithliday thank you so much for joining us and you can check out his work on addicted to quack and, of course, on the Quack 12 podcast. Hitlerday, thank you so much. My pleasure. And that is going to wrap up this edition of the QB11 show. Be sure to join us next week for part two with Hitlerday. As always, he's QB11. I'm Doug Scott, and thank you for listening.